Good morning, all. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Adrian. I'll be taking us through the next part of our kind of gathering together. I want to start by telling you a story. A story revolves around a guy called Bill. Bill had been uh, at a number of work uh, kind of events in South America and um, found himself at the end of quite a busy schedule at the airport looking to fly back to uh, his hometown of Chicago. And as he's sat in the airport just watching life go by, he tells the story that he suddenly sees these two lads uh, kind of come around, but no one seems to own them. And they turn out to be quite unusual lads in how they're behaving as they're kicking over cases, kind of making their way around the airport, until one of them does something that seems to irritate the other. And these, these boys are kind of around the age of 11 to 13. And the 13-year-old suddenly hits the 11-year-old smack in the face with his fist. At this point, Bill's thinking, surely someone's going to intervene. Like, where are their parents? Isn't going to, someone going to do something? And watches, horrified as numbers of other kind of passengers waiting for their flights, look on at these two boys who then begin a full-on fight. The smaller one starts to kick the bigger one until the bigger one throws the smaller one to the floor and starts to smack his head repeatedly on the floor. At this point, Bill thinks, surely someone's going to do something, but no one is. And so Bill steps forward and grabs the two boys and separates them whilst they're kicking and punching and blood is pouring. Now, at this point, you think, man, where's this story going? Like, blood first thing on a Sunday morning? No, no, let's keep carrying in there. And as he's pulling them apart, the call for his aeroplane comes through. Final boarding notice. As Bill kind of stands there, these two kind of boys at each other, he walks to a security guard and throws them at his direction and goes to his plane. As he goes to his plane, he sees that the security guard has got these lads and is seeking to try and bring peace there. As Bill gets on the plane, he then starts to contemplate, how can this change? What's the answer to situations like that, whether it's two boys at an airport or you can magnify it through to cities, nations, whatever spectrum we want to look at? What is the answer? And at that point, Bill pens this, and he says this, I believe the local church is the hope of the world. I believe to the core of my being that the church has the potential to be the most influential force on planet Earth. If they get it and get on with it, churches can become the redemptive centers that Jesus intended them to be. Dynamic teaching, creative worship, deep community, effective evangelism, and joyful service will combine to renew the hearts and minds of seekers and believers alike, strengthen families, transform communities, and change the world. And Bill, from that point on, Bill Hybels said, I would give my life now to causing there to be communities scattered through this world that know that's why they're there. And today I want us to remind ourselves of why we exist as church. We exist because we're in a world that deeply needs what we've got to get to know through who God is. See, the church isn't some institutional club. The church is this bunch of people that have come to center their lives around Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And out of that, of course, 
ourselves to understand that we've been changed forever. But it doesn't just change us as an individual. It changes us of who we are together. And it's that part that I want to look at today as we get to look at this next bit of Colossians where Paul's going to get to reveal something of what it looks like to live our life together. And living life together is ultimately what we get to call church, which isn't a fancy building that we're meeting. It's about who we are as a bunch of people. Now, before we get to the church bit, I just want to do a quick recap of where we were a couple of weeks ago, because it's important to note, really, that where we've got to in this letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae is this moment of saying, hey, this is the wonder of who Jesus is in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the wonder of what Jesus has done. And now this is to shape who you are as an individual. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at actually in being those who've sent our lives on Jesus, it's an invitation to live and to die. To live in this amazing, abundant life that Jesus has for us. One that we get to live in who he is as the raised, resurrected one. Hidden in him. Where our very life is him. But also one where we get to not only enjoy the life that we get to live in him, setting our hearts on that, we also get to die to the old life with ourselves at the center. And that's a process of where we, actually as I choose more and more to live with Jesus at the center of who I am, I then say, actually, I don't want these things that fall short of who he is. If I was honest, like, when I think of who Jesus is, I know that he wouldn't have anything to do with that. And therefore, I want to continue to get free of that. And so we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and I actually stood in, well, it was actually in this point two weeks ago, but as we've moved the chairs around, I thought I'd stand in this point today. And Two weeks ago, I said, actually, I know for me, something of the stuff that I've got to die to is I've picked up an old bone, a bone that was of my old self, that had been dead and buried for years, and it was that bone of worrying about what people think of me. And then I said, actually, I'm going to kind of say, please, would you help me ensure that I don't keep living with this old bone? Let's make sure it just stays dead and buried and keep living in the new life that I have. And... So I know that different ones of us have been encouraging me, saying, are you making sure you don't pick up the old bone? Or are you handling it? Knowing there might be times where I might do. In actual fact, there's one individual within Oasis who said, because they heard my request, saying, if I do it, feel free to slap me. They come up to me whenever they see me, they say, do you need a slap? (laughs) Such a loving statement. Do you need a slap? Because have you been picking up the old bone? And what I can say is, no, I don't. Because part of me in confessing that has been, actually, I want to live in this amazing life that Jesus has for me. Why would I want to take hold of the old stuff that's dead and buried? So that's kind of a bit of accountability that I'm just modeling there. I hope we're seeing that. Maybe, I don't know what it was for you, because you didn't have to confess it in front of everyone. But how are you doing in continuing to live in the life that Jesus offers And seeking to die to that old life, which so takes us away from the abundance of what we get in Jesus. But what Paul then does is he says, actually, it isn't just to change who you are as an individual. It changes who we are together as a group of people. That we aren't a bunch of people who are individually connected to Jesus. We become those that when we center our lives on him are organically connected to one another and to him. And 
Paul describes what this looks like in the next bit of Colossians 3, where he writes this, verses 11 to 16. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing one another and If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul wants us to understand who we are as the church, what it means to live our lives together. What he does is he says, hey, this is who you are and this is how you're to act. That's what he does in this passage. And we can tend to rush to, okay, we've got Jesus at the center. We're meant to be the church. How, what are we meant to do then? How are we going to act? How are we all doing then as respect to how women are acting? Actually, for Paul, he says, no, no, you act out of the reality of what you understand of this unbelievable privilege of who you are. So if we jump to the next screen, what we find is as we understand more and more of who we are together, it then causes us to flow into how we then act together. Which then, as we act out of that place, it can't help but cause us to then flow into a knowledge, an unbelievable privilege of who we are, which then cycles round to then how we act. And so that's simply what I want us to do today, is just look at this passage and say, well, what does Paul say about who we are? And what does then Paul say about how we act? And so we'll start off with who we are. You see, what we're going to look at in who we are together is what's true for us here at Oasis is true for every expression of the wonder of the church in every city, town, village throughout this world. is isn't we've got a monopoly on this. It's rather it gives us this privilege of how we view everyone who's seeking to gather and say, hey, we're seeking to be church here. We're seeking to live life together here. And therefore, for some of us, as we continue, it's going to cause us to think, man, I maybe need to change how I've been viewing that one. Maybe for some of us, it's actually that we're going to get to this point of saying, actually, maybe it needs to change how I view what I'm part of. You see, what we can discover in who we are is there is an unbelievable privilege. But with that privilege, we're going to see it doesn't fuel a sense of kind of pride. Brother, it fuels a sense of responsibility. See, as I said, the church isn't kind of like a club. It isn't like golf club. It isn't that we've become members of Tesco's Extra, so we're thinking, I've got my card, what are the benefits I'm going to get? And we can discover, actually, in following Jesus, it automatically means we get to be defined totally different, not only as an individual, but also as we gather with others who are centering their lives around Jesus. As a Paul, verses 11 to 12, kind of zooms in of who we are. And in this, I want to just briefly look at four things he says through these verses. You see, firstly, he says, we're one. It's just that actually, 
There isn't any difference. And he gives this list, and he says, well, you know, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. And we can look at that list and go, yep, I don't really know why he's talking about that because it has no relevance to me. Yet what Paul was talking about here is he was looking at national differences, educational differences, cultural differences, and religious differences. And saying, actually, through Jesus, all barriers are broken down. Because suddenly it's no longer about who you were in terms of your identity. It's about who you are now because of Jesus. And Jesus causes every single one of us to approach him in the same way. We all need him. We then all get the same result, which is we all get to receive him. And therefore Paul says when we are to think of who we are together, we're to understand there's now no barriers. With this unbelievable bunch of people who can gather and say, actually, we're not defined by our educational background, our cultural background, what religious experiences we've had, or what decisions we've made. We're defined by who Jesus is. And therefore, the barriers get broken down. The church should be a place, we should be a place where anyone can come in. I think I could find home here. Why? Because every barrier is broken down. Sarah and Becca, please could you just help me just for a moment? These guys, I, they, this is, they're now thinking, oh no, never going to sit on the front row. Here's still, I'm not going to do anything bad to either of you, I promise. Ah, 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 ah. I felt like it'd be like Alexa, is it Alexa? The kind of, anyway, we don't do that. The Google weird thing that is suddenly taking over the world from this last week. Um, here's the deal, we're back on one. See, what it means that we are one means that I don't have to live thinking, how do I compare to Sarah? Exactly, I don't need to think about that. I don't need to think that I'm taller than Sarah. I don't need to think about, oh man, Sarah was the one bringing that amazing scripture this morning, reminding us about the wonderful women there are in the Bible and how Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, continuously honor and lift them up because there's a quality and so I, but I don't have to compare myself to, to Sarah. Rather, I have to think, actually, it isn't like, how do I measure up? Because we're one. There's no barrier there. It's the death of comparison. Thank you, Sarah, for a moment. But not only is it the death of comparison, it's also the death of competition. So with Becca, I could be thinking, man, how am I doing in respect to where Becca's at, man? Do, am I like as spiritual as she is? Or am I, am I more spiritual? I'm lo- looking at, you know, we both sit on the front row. Maybe, maybe we're, we're okay. No, but, it, but it's not that. It's that actually I get to think, actually, I need to live competing with Becca because we're in the same boat. We're one in Jesus. Thank you, Becca. That it ends that sense of because we're one, we don't need to compare or compete. Rather, we get to celebrate Celebrating the fact that different ones of us are different. And yet we're one. Because Jesus breaks down barriers. In order that others can come in and go, how does this work? Oh, Jesus. It's all about him. One. Second thing in terms of who we are, if we go to the next slide, is that not only are we one, we're chosen. 
The Paul wants us to understand we're, we're not any old bunch of people. We're those that have been chosen by God to be his people. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that God defines this people called Israel and says, actually, I want you to be my ambassadors on the world, in the world. I want you to be the ones who reveal the wonder of who I am, of what it looks like to follow me, and then cause every other nation to be blessed because of how you act. And we know the story that basically that people group continuously doesn't live up to the wonder of the privilege they have, but rather start to get more proud about what they're going to be. Until out of it, Jesus, though, comes from that people group to be the ultimate definition of how they were going to bless every nation. And it isn't that God then gave up on that plan, no, rather he brought it about new through Jesus. He said, now through Jesus, there's going to be a people that were like Israel. There's going to be a new Israel. A new people that what? Get to reveal who God is and get to know who God is. Not out of a sense of arrogance of, hey, look at us, we're the church, we've got the answer. Out of this deep sense of gratitude of, look at God, look how amazing he is, and look how he's transformed my life, and let me show it to you. But who we are together is we're chosen. But it isn't just we're one, we're chosen, also we're holy. We're those who've been set apart by God. We're no longer like living for what this world has to offer. That's the old life of saying, actually, I want to gain everything I can. No, through Jesus, we get everything. So we're able to say, actually, in this moment, I've been set apart to just be for God, to reveal who he is, to be satisfied in him. We're set apart. I don't feel very set apart today. I know that's not the truth. It isn't about how we feel. It's about a reality of what God has spoken about, who we are together. We're holy We're set apart for him. We're to be those that just as he is pure and holy, we get to be like him, caught up in that. Isn't that we're going to be there yet, but it's where we're going, continuously dying to the old life, living in the wonder of the new in order that we'd reveal something of what it is to be set apart for him. And the most amazing thing is we're loved. Loved by the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who've birthed who we are out of love. Greater love hath no one than this, that he died for his friend, Jesus. That's what he said. Father reveals his love for us, and whilst we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. That who we are together has been birthed out of God's relentless, overwhelming, unconditional love. That we become a a company of people together who are more loved than we could dare to believe. That's who we are. That we live with an unbelievable privilege of being one, of being chosen, of being holy, and of being loved. And in that privilege of knowing this is who we are, there comes this moment, just as like the uncle to Peter Parker in Spider-Man says, that with great privilege comes great responsibility that's what happens with us it isn't that we kind of see this and we're going to high five each other and go hey we're the answer to everything let's just go and speak to everyone else because we're better than them that's kind of been the history of the last kind of not last 10 but before that 20 years 
was the church continuously going out, telling everyone else how bad they were and how good they were, good they are as a church. It doesn't work. Rather, it's about saying how good God is and how we all need him. And so with this sense of privilege of who we are, we then get to act. We get to have this responsibility of how we then act together. And Paul says this, so we find in how we act, verses 12 to 16, he kind of paints this vivid picture of how we're to act together. And what we find is through these verses are an unbelievable revelation of what it means to live together. The, the church is meant to be a place of breathtaking beauty. The, how we get to act together out of that sense of privilege is both marked in whenever we gather, but also whenever we scatter. Wherever we're uniquely placed, we get to live out of this. And we're going to look at that a bit next week. Rather today, I just want to look at it, of how it impacts us as we gather together. Because unfortunately, sometimes it isn't breathtaking. Sometimes it's stench-giving. It's not how it's meant to be. Because that's when we truly understand who we are. It transforms how we act. And the how we act comes in this link pin in verse kind of uh, 15, I think it is, where it just says, uh, or verse 14, and above all these, put on love. You see, in everything that we get to live, it comes through this fundamental starting point of understanding, yes, we are loved, but that then means that we love that we're a bunch of people who live our lives together out of love. Why is that so important? Well, it's so important because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if you do stuff without love, it will just be a clashing symbol. And some of us will say, yeah, but that gets your attention. Yeah, it does get your attention for a moment. But I tell you what, if all you ever hear is a clashing symbol, you don't want to be around it for long. Who we are together is this company of people, this community, this body, this church that is founded in love and then seeks to do everything of every action we take is out of that deep sense of love for others. I don't have a sense of how can I be loved. No, I'm already more loved than I could dare to believe. Therefore, how do I get to reveal this love in and through everything I do? And Paul then goes on to say, well, what it looks like is that you need to put some stuff on. If you're going to love out of this place, how you should act together is going to be different. So he says, it's going to be that you act towards each other with compassion. In other words, you see the needs of others and a move to action of kindness, that you're generous and considerate, of humility, that you look to serve, not be served, of gentleness, of where you handle others with care, of patience, of allowing time for people, not giving up on them, not becoming frustrated, of forgiving as we've been forgiven. And that last one, forgiveness, is so important. Forgiveness is where we say, just as the Father has let me off, I let someone else off. But I recognize I've been wronged, but I seek and say, I forgive them. I let them off. 
And I let them off as the Father has forgiven me. In other words, as the Bible says, that God counts our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he's forgiven us totally, never to be spoken of again. That we've become this bunch of people who seek to live lives of quick forgiveness, of understanding where we've been wronged, but then saying, actually, now I seek to forgive, and I'm not going to bring this up continuously. I let it go. It becomes transforming. And I know how this one can cripple us. Jesus told a story of an unmerciful servant who sought to be found to accept mercy, but then stopped showing it. And he stopped showing it. What it did is it imprisoned him. And it caused him to not live in the wonder and beauty of the mercy he'd been shown. And Jesus tells that story about forgiveness. He said, actually, you have been forgiven more than you could dare to believe. So if you don't then go on and forgive, and the only one is ultimately going to harm is you. You're going to imprison yourself. And as a church, we can be riddled, church general, not just specific here, of that sense of I've been wronged and I'm just going to wait to put it right. It destroys us, imprisons us rather than forgiving. The deal is, and we're going to look at this, that this is how the church is meant to be. This is how we're meant to be as Oasis. But the deal is sometimes we get it wrong. And at that point, I step up to the plane and I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I, if we as a bunch of people have got it wrong towards you. And when we've caused you to taste something different to what was meant to be in terms of church. I'm sorry for that. I'm also going to step in for a moment to a bigger responsibility. Because I know that it might not be here. Maybe you've come from somewhere else. And the church that you got involved in, maybe... I don't want to disrespect them, but actually your experience of that wasn't this. And it burned and broke you. And for that, I also want to say sorry. Because it's not what Jesus wanted. And the fact you're in this room means that you've not given up. You realize it isn't what Jesus wanted. And you're willing to keep going to give yourself for something that is better. But I want to push us and say, not only am I going to say sorry, I also want to call us and say, hey, why don't we give ourselves to this? Out of the privilege and wonder of who we are together, let's give ourselves to living like this towards one another, to living like this towards anyone who comes amongst us. Let me tell you some stories about this. See, I often think back to a girl called Kitty. Kitty was someone I watched on a BBC documentary. Kitty became pregnant at age 14. Total didn't plan it, obviously, and found that her kind of community was a very close-knit community, totally rejected her. She'd be spat on at school. Uh, Neighbours would just throw stuff at her. And within the interview of this teenage mum, she says, but there was this one community who accepted me at that moment. And she said, it was this weird one. It was this weird one that met down the road. It was a church. And she said, at the moment where everyone else rejected me, they accepted me. At the moment where everyone else seemed to be wanting to do me harm, they just showed me kindness. At the moment where it seemed like everyone else was judging me, they just accepted. And she said, the thing is, when you experience, these are her words, that sort of love, 
you can't help be drawn to what the source is. And then she turns to this interview, and it's the BBC, and you can see them trying to retract the microphone, going, oh no, this is going somewhere we didn't want it to go. She says, so, so I'm getting baptised next month because I want Jesus in. And you thought, oh, you weren't expecting that. And I, as I listened to that, I thought, that's the kind of church I want to give myself to that causes others to taste and see compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving, forgiveness. Because it's so attractive. But I also want to give it, as we gather together, so I know within this room, and I'm not going to name names, but I know within this room, there are individuals who tell me stories where actually they knew they came bruised and battered. And yet here they've known patience to just be kindness that's restored them, and hope. I can tell you about a lady who came around us last Sunday who just came in desperation, unable to feed her children, unable to pay for gas and electric at one of the freezing cold weekends there is, and we were able to provide for her. Why? Because she just needed kindness. That's what she needed, and we were able to invite her around. I could tell the story about an elderly couple who came here by mistake, a couple of Sundays ago, kind of was sat there slightly kind of, whoa, what's going on here? And then at the end of the meeting, I can name this guy because I know he doesn't want me telling stories. So Vince goes up to them and just starts talking to them. And I see him. He doesn't know I'm watching. I see him as he just lovingly listens to them and then offers to pray with them. And I can see them shedding tears altogether. I can tell you the story of the moment where a family that are dear to us, the Rosiers, are just doing a journey of terminal illness. And yet I know what Gus would share if he was here is he knew that we were kind, but he didn't realize how kind. And he'd say, oh, my story within the pain is the kindness that I've received through this loving community. I could go on and keep telling you stories about this, but what I want us to see is when we give ourselves to this stuff, it transforms. It transforms us. It transforms anyone else who comes into contact with us. But it isn't just about how we act towards each other. It's also about how we act together. And Paul kind of gets this moment of saying, actually, it also transforms them when you gather. He says, actually, it's going to transform when you gather by actually causing it to be a, a proclamation of who it's always about, because it becomes this evidence moment of how Christ dwells richly in every single one of us. I remember a friend of mine coming to me once, a couple of years ago, and he said, Adrian, the thing with Oasis I don't understand is whenever Oasis is talked about, no one ever mentions your name. Why is that? I said, why would they? And I genuinely didn't understand the question. And then he said, well, surely you want Oasis to be known about you. And I said, no. I want Oasis to be known about Jesus. Because as far as I saw it, that's who it was always about. And that's what we want to give ourselves to. We've been transformed by Jesus and how he changes everything full stop. Therefore, as a company of people, we allow him to richly dwell within us in order that he would be the one it's always about. So that anyone coming around us wouldn't just come in and say, hey, you're nice. They come and say, Jesus is amazing. And then Paul says, therefore, as Jesus dwells richly in you, it can't help but come out of you. 
can't come, help but come out of you when you're together in how you teach and encourage one another. That you're continuously pointing one another to have lives centered more on him. Yes, correcting sometimes, and hey, I think you're settling for second best here. But it's not out of a, you're dealing with second best. No, it's out of a, a, a love of saying, come on, why would you settle for that when there's this? And also it becomes this deep sense of thankfulness. Thankfulness to God that we're not alone. We're with him, we're together. Thankfulness that is always about him. So whenever we gather, we're always going to be much of saying thanks to God, regardless of whatever's going on in our life, because there's always much to be thankful to him for. Therefore, we live our lives together. At this point, all I do is ask this question. What is it you need to do next? Because this is what we're giving ourselves to. What is it that you need to do? I know what it is I need to do. What is it you need to do to allow us to reveal the wonder of who God is, living in the privilege of what he's called us to be, and then acting out of the wonder of what he's called us to do?